Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jen Bartlett and not too many more selects until Radiothon. Well, I'm sure you're hearing more about that. But today, a focus on the NACPA webinar presented by Free Palestine Melbourne back in mid-May and you'll be hearing from the four panellists. And one of the hats of Dr Alison Bronowski is that of an anti-war activist and she'll be speaking about why Australia is going against the trend in increasing military spending. And Dr Sue Wareham on the decision yesterday about the $500 million expansion of the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when the nation celebrated Reconciliation Week, real true Aussies like us attempting to reconcile with people who don't even exist, terra nullius, terra nullius non-people, although I'm wondering in which bit of post-1788 history we were so close we need to reconcile. But how warming the way the Western Troubloisie Socialist Government went out of its way, way beyond the call of duty, to celebrate the week introducing its new Aboriginal Heritage Act in response to esteemed corporate Rio Tinto the Planet putting access to profit ahead of 46,000 years of terra nullius non-people history. And what thanks do the Western Troubloisie Socialists get? Bloody criticism. The local indigenous mobs are critical of the new legislation, yet the mining oil and gas giants who contribute so much to this country support it, showing it is almost impossible to reconcile with people who just don't accept a little bit of compromise. Like the Minister for Keeping Terra Nullius Non-People in Their Place, Stephen Dor Closeson, declaring indigenous people would not have a power of veto over mining and related activity proposals, when the resource industry prepared to compromise, declared a veto power, would pose too great a threat to the economy. While obviously the ingrate non-people are prepared to put their history and traditions ahead of the economic interests, as if there's a comparison. The veto would be a red flag, the industry warned, although the term red flag might encourage a socialist government to adopt it. Be careful, Chamber of Minerals and Energy Profits Council, Supremo Paul Everything We Can Dig Ham, himself a former caring business class party politician. But Paul exemplified the spirit of compromise, of reconciliation that the terra nullius non-people reject. The proposal retains a right of appeal for the indigenous people, a right which has worked a treat over many years. We have always supported a right to appeal for all parties, Paul was all reason, and think the draft legislation provides adequate rights of appeal. Adequate, Paul. Yes, yes, adequate enough to ensure the right of appeal does nothing to prevent us doing what we want to do. The opposite of that common sense, the negativity of the non-people expressed by the Kimberley Land Council Chair Anthony Watson. The legislation he raved on is deeply flawed in a backward step as it places control over critical decision-making about Aboriginal cultural heritage in the hands of mining companies and other land users. The government needs to recognise that traditional owners have a right to protect their cultural heritage and not bow to the interests of the big mining companies. 
have we ever heard anything so selfish? Particularly when we hear Paul everything we can dig hams, the chamber of prophets, reasoned compromise, and the rigidity of the non-people. Despite that, we must congratulate the Western True Blue Aussie government for having a go, for going out of its way to celebrate reconciliation with people who clearly don't want to be reconciled. Caring business class party conference with big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs declaring, we are not here to serve big business, we are here to serve the True Blue Aussie people. Where did that come from? Why would he think he needed to say that? Does he for some reason think there are people who may think they do serve big business? Surely not. Well, the odd long-haired commie greeny wouldn't work in an iron lot might, but they're irrelevant, and Josh knows that the interests of the true blue Aussie people and the interests of big business, the caring business class, are identical, symbiotic. So really, he had no need to say it. It's like the Socialist Party keeps telling us it is here in the interests of workers and the underprivileged, as if it has to, as if it needs to convince us of the obvious, because the obvious is so obvious. The New South Wales Socialist Party, no longer state supremo and no longer would-be big supremo, resigned following a bit of a backlash from the upper Hunter by-election. And a former supremo and would-be big supremo Michael Daly has thrown his hat into the ring, saying he'd learned from his mistakes during the 2019 election the Socialists lost when he came under a bit of criticism for saying foreigners from typically Asia, Asian countries, were taking jobs off locals. I learnt your lesson, Michael. Uh, yes, I can guarantee that will never happen again. Uh, so you don't think those things anymore? Uh, of course I do, but, but I'm not going to say them. Very sensible. Josh and the great corporate leaders who know what's good for all of us were celebrating figures showing the economy is bigger now than it was before the pandemic's a magnificent recovery. This is great news for workers. Now they'll be able to escape from the slow wages growth that has had you all so worried. Good heavens, do, do you want to destroy the recovery, destroy the economy, set us all back years? Now is not the time to ask for a pay rise. If workers want to see wages rise, the end of slow wages growth, the last thing they should do is ask for a pay rise. Uh, well, so if they want a pay rise, they shouldn't ask for a pay rise. Exactly. Any wonder we have to leave these matters to those who know, because in my obvious naivety, I thought a thriving economy would be a good time to, but, but no, Josh and the great barons of the boardrooms know, understand, and we can rest assured they'll tell us when the time is right for a pay rise, as slow wages growth's been worrying the life out of them for years. As an aside, similar logic from former Attorney General Christian Portaloo, whose defamation action ended up in the Portaloo, but after he withdrew the matter, he said the ABC had chosen not to proceed, forgetting to mention the apparently irrelevant fact that there was no longer anything on which to proceed. Top logic Christian. The government's concern for workers and those for whom it is responsible was evidenced in the aged care sector. Vaccination rates of residents and staff in the majority of homes for which it is responsible. Thus, we ask the Minister for Unbelievable Stupidity, Richard Cole back private profits, about the incidence of vaccination rates. Uh, Minister, what percentage of staff have been vaccinated? Minister? 
minister. Oh, sorry, you you talking to me? Well, yes, you're the minister for unbelievable stupidity. I am? Uh, yes, so what's the rate? What rate? I, I think I, I paid my rates. Actually, I'm not sure. I'd I better check. Thanks for reminding me. No, no, the rate of staff vaccination and resident vaccination in aged care facilities. I've got no idea. Why would you ask me that? What, what makes you think I'd know that? Well, mainly because you're the responsible minister, using responsible very loosely, Richard. I'm a minister. I don't recall going to theology college. Uh, no, let's be fair. Richard is very bright. He knows the answer to every question is, I don't know. His colleague, the Minister for Capitalist Education, Alan Tudge Won't Budge, told a universities conference he sympathised with the sector as one of the hardest hit financially by COVID. Unfortunately, sympathy's all they got. So what will you do to help, Al? Well, obviously, a sympathetic nothing. Surely my sympathy's enough. The socialist shadow capitalist education minister, Tanya Pleba-Seeker-Wynn, did tell the conference that if they were coal, iron ore or natural gas, you'd be treated very differently. Gotta hope Alan's sympathy isn't keeping him awake at night, and I've got a feeling it isn't. Telly news the other night, telling us what gems awaited us after the break. After the break, a TV legend set sail on her his last yacht, I thought, but no, set sail for heaven or hell or oblivion. An actor who played the captain in Love Boat died, but in the land of euphemistics, he didn't die. He set sail with the wind behind him. Perhaps he died of an acute case of flatulence. So if we see a cruise ship disappearing into the winter sky, along with a winged pig and a big pie in the sky, it's him. Speaking of pies, a leaked internal report from multinational food, we'll be kind and call it food, food behemoth, Nestle's, revealed that more than 60% of its products do not meet a recognized definition of health and some of our categorical food confectionery and ice creams were a mere 99% unhealthy. Junk beverages that unhealthy, 96% unhealthy, and just to stamp uh, Nestle's commitment to community health, strawberry-flavoured Nesquik, marketed as perfect at breakfast to get kids ready for the day, contains, even by their standards, this is pretty incredible, 14 grams of sugar in a 14-gram serving, but the report being leaked Nestle's rejected claims that processed foods, including its own, tend to be unhealthy. But the stat that I have a bit of trouble with is their water, which passed glowingly with an 82% health positive. But, but, but we're talking about water. Where, where does the 18% unhealthy bit come from? I, I thought water was water, ignoring the fact that we can get it out of a tap rather than fill Nestle's healthy coffers, the only thing healthy about them. Not to mention Nestle's social and environmental impacts on communities, particularly in so-called third world countries, from which it sources its water. Couple of finalists. Comparing the common sense of the caring business class to our 
Well, certainly my economic naivety. Sensibly, the Chambers of Profits have declared our lockdown shows there must be no wage rise for the lowest paid of the lowest paid. The Telstra, which used to be ours, Woolworths Trillions, and the Witch Bank, which used to be our bank, got together to bemoan the excessive complexity of caring business class relations, wishing we could return to the days of uncontrollable socialists, former big supremo Paul and ACTU supremo Bill Kilty the Workers, who showed a genuine intent to find solutions that allowed companies to grow and be successful. And we must say here, did they what? And in the high-income end of the economy, they discovered, gee, who would have thought? But in accounting firms, for instance, male partners are paid on average 60% more than female partners, with one bank organising a program to educate people on the problem. Now, they understand, and here's my naivety coming out again, I would have thought a simple solution would be simply, to to wait for it, simply to pay women the rate. Obviously wrong. Good afternoon. Hi, this is Isaac, and I'm talking to you from a tree seat 40 metres high in the Arenandra Plateau. I'm here with other activists because we want to stop what Big Forest is planning to do, which is to destroy 60 new areas in one of the last refuges of unburned forests in East Gippsland. We're calling the state government to protect all unburned areas of East Gippsland. If you want to get involved, contact gecko at gecko.org.au and join the campaign. A 3CR supporter. Did you know that you can pledge your support to 3CR Radiothon now and pay up later? Call the station during business hours on 9419 8377 and tell us what you'd like to donate and then pay your donation later. Solidarity Breakfast. Your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. On Wednesday the 19th of May, Free Palestine Melbourne presented an online MACBA forum. Returning to Palestine, liberated and discussion, supporting, save shape, Jarrah. On the program today we feature the four panellists, Professor Tony Birch, Indigenous author and writer, Dr Sari Sananari, Palestinian artist and cultural historian, Nasser Mashni, Vice President of Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, and Dr Jody Silverstein, Jewish historian, based in Melbourne and member of the Australian Jewish Democratic Society. We begin with Dr Tony Birch. I do want to thank um, Tasman for organising this. We've had associations in the past, particularly with the Black Palestinian 
solidarity conference that we had two years ago and it was wonderful not only to meet her but to meet other people as well. What I want to talk about, I do want to talk about some comparative issues of shared history or similar histories and resistance, but I need to start today by, by saying two other things. And firstly, for me, this is, a, this is about our relationships, this is about our friendships, and this is about our shared sense of solidarity. So Aboriginal people in Australia in the last 50 years of activism have um, not only supported the Palestinian cause, we've had great support from Palestinian people about our own struggle. And those relationships that have been forged over those decades are very enriching for all of us. And I would state that they've established really long-term, not only political alliances, but more importantly, really dear friendships. And that is important to me because in recent years, I've got to know um, a lot more Palestinian people than I had in the past. And I find those relationships absolutely vital to who I am and as an Aboriginal person and as a sovereign Aboriginal person I take the notion that um, Palestinian people living on Aboriginal land need to be supported not only in their struggle abroad but their sense of exile or how they feel about living in a country like Australia. It's also very important for me to say that um, I want to express some my, my sadness, my support for the community here in Australia, what you're going through at the moment in relationship to the destruction of your country, in relationship to the impact on your loved ones, your community, your nation. It, I'm sure it is deeply traumatic. I'm sure that it is um, deeply distressing. And it's important that I let you know that um, not only myself, but all of my friends in the Aboriginal community who I associate with, who I'm a, a political ally with and friends with, we are very upset about what has happened and we want you to know. And this I, I, I would express to the, every Palestinian person in the audience tonight, whether it be here in Melbourne, across Australia, anywhere across the globe, and certainly for people in your homeland, that um, we are very sad about what has happened and we, we, we can guarantee you that our support for you will, will, will not waver and our support for you will, will always be there. You can always rely on us because we know um, that we have always been able to rely on you. So we take that friendship and relationship very, very seriously. The other issue that I'm a bit hesitant to discuss or to think about is there are very important comparative histories, but I just think I want to focus on what's happened in the last um, few weeks in Palestine. I want to think specifically about those events. I'm not trying in any way to dismiss the terrible violence that impacts on Aboriginal people in Australia today particularly in relationship to incarceration, but not only incarceration, but what is happening at the moment in Palestine is particularly graphic, particularly distressing. So my sense is that I want to make sure that my attention is drawn toward supporting you. Having said that, I, I, I want to say something else about, I suppose, the relationships of what we might call um, settler colonial violence, its impact on our nations and on our countries and what we need to do for each other in the long term to, to, to make sure that that support is tangible, that it is concrete. So I started by saying this, that I regard myself as a sovereign person. And what I mean by that is the same way I think that many Palestinians think we don't need our sovereignty granted to us by a government. In other words, we don't want our sovereignty granted 
to us by a foreign occupier or a colonial power or an invader. So when people talk about Aboriginal sovereignty in Australia, it's the same way is expressed by people in Palestine. We're not seeking sovereignty from the settler occupier. We must express sovereignty within ourselves intellectually, politically and emotionally. And the reason I say that here and its relevance to our Palestinian friends is our sovereignty in Australia comes with really really important responsibilities. So I want to say to people again that for Palestinians living in Australia, living in exile, or as Tasman talked about, not being able to even step foot in their own country, we take responsibility for you while you are here. We take responsibility to care for you while you're here, and we take responsibility to support you while you are here and while you continue to struggle for your homeland. I do though want now want to talk about some comparative issues, and I think that yeah, we can think about the terrible destruction of physical violence, you know, through the bullet, through the bomb, through attacks on people, through imprisonment, through incarceration. But what we know that's occurred alongside that, and this has been stated by other people, is that the whole idea of the violence of clearance. So one of the issues that is really, to me, strong in the sense of thinking comparatively about the destruction of Indigenous land, both in Palestine and Australia, is the bulldozer. So you know, we've seen the shock and destruction of your homes in Palestine. And what we see in Australia is often the destruction of our home and um, homelands because of mining, because of development, um, because of some need to so-called economically improve land. But that, of course, is a, a means of destroying land and destroying, as we would say, in Australia country. And I think that what is tellingly rel- relative here. And this is really important, I think, in relationship to Nakba and what has happened in recent weeks, is that both in Australia and in, in Palestine and in Jerusalem in particular, is that um, what happened in the last few weeks in, with Nakba, the refusal to allow people to commemorate in ways that they wanted to, is that what is happening there is a refusal to accept truth. So what colonial authorities have done traditionally in both countries is a means of trying to silence people, to try and silence people from being active, to try and silence people, as we saw in that really important film that introduced us here tonight, for people wanting to be truth tellers, people seeking to tell the truth about the destructive impact on colonialism in their society. And this is very similar in Australia as it is in Palestine. And it has followed a very similar path for many, many years now. Now, because of that, as we saw in this film, as we see in activism, as we see in the um, protests in the street, as we see in gatherings like tonight, as we see in relationship to literature, so I've been introducing to great Palestinian writers in recent years, we have an absolute responsibility to be engaged in a form of truth-telling. So it's very important for all of us that we not only get the so-called message out, but we're able to counter these stories of refusal and denial by informing people about the truth of what has happened in both our countries. And I've been very fortunate, as I said, because of my associations with the Palestinian community to get a much greater and in-depth understanding of those histories and stories that I would otherwise not have access to because of the media. And I also know that this puts a lot of responsibility and um, I think sometimes stress on people. So I would say to our Palestinian friends, like with our Aboriginal friends, because we need to share the load. We need to support each other and share the load of sharing those stories so we don't get burnt out and destroyed by the activism we're involved in. And 
The other thing I think it's relative to this and just sum up with a couple of points is that the other issue, of course, is, is the way that memory has become a, a strategy, a political device, a, a fiction. And I think in relationship to, to Palestine, again, I think when I'm reading some of the reports coming out, when I get access to some of the histories of, say, the history of the, the origins of Nakba, is what the Israeli government attempts to do, whether it be to remove people from houses, to remove people from community, to bulldoze communities, to do terrible violence as is being enacted now. It's not only to destroy physical places, not only to destroy people, but it is to destroy the legitimacy of the memory of what has actually has happened in this country so that the fiction that is told that overlays this cleared land, that overlays the houses that people have been thrown out of, it creates a, a, a means of um, silencing the past. So I think we also have a shared responsibility to make sure that those stories of the past are shared, disseminated, and, and we get them out there. I suppose the last thing I want to say, and it, it goes back to Gassan's introduction in some way, and that is the corruption of the way people talk about violence, the way people talk about defending themselves, and certainly the way people talk about human rights. I think what is for me one of the most, what angers me so much at the moment, and I shouldn't be surprised because I've seen this all my life, is the selective support of human rights, which of course renders any support of human rights obsolete. And we know just for instance in the US that we know during the election last year that um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, it was very important for them to give a nod to the Black Lives Matter movement because they were reliant on turning out millions and millions of African-American voters, which they were, were able to do, or certainly increase the vote amongst African-American voters. When we hear not only the silence in relationship to what's happening in Palestine, but more than that proactive support of Israel, it not only is disgraceful in the way that the human rights of Palestinian people are ignored by someone like the US powers, it's important to say that any claims they make to support of human rights in relationship to any country, any ally, I think should be disregarded because you cannot, you cannot support the human rights of, of one person or one group of people and deny them to another. And we need to also make sure we get that story out there. So I just want to say in conclusion that it is true, as, as Tasmin talked about, there are very strong comparative histories between Aboriginal people in Australia and Palestinians, um, very strong. And I just want to say that we need to make sure that we continue to support you um, at this moment. And we do so knowing that we always can rely on you for support when we need it. I don't think I've been to an Invasion Day rally where I haven't seen a really strong Palestinian contingent. And it means so much to us and we will reciprocate in whatever way we can. So thank you very much for inviting me tonight. Following on from Dr Tony Birch was artist and cultural historian Dr Asari Sananiri. Thanks, Tasneem. And, you know, thank you so much for organising this event, which I think has been uh, rather an evolving event given the, the ways in which things have played out in the last few weeks. So, you know, I think the sort of frameworks for what we've all been thinking about has sort of, have been sort of moving along with sort of political events as they go. Um, but in the end, you know, one of the things about the current moment, I think, is that uh, we, you know, we all understand that there is a sort of a, a much longer history to what's going on in Palestine at the moment, to what's going on in Jerusalem. 
to the sort of history of this conflict. But sometimes understanding some of those contexts uh, can be a little bit opaque for people. I mean, I think some of the debates around what's going on in Sheikh Jarrah are, uh, you know, we sort of hear about the current situation as a property dispute and a conflict over property. We hear about this as a sort of an aspect of settler colonialism. We hear about, you know, sort of ideas of war and conflict versus settler colonialism and how these sort of intersect and some of these. Sometimes these debates can seem a little bit opaque, I think. So one of the things that I really wanted to do today was just to talk a little bit about Jerusalem, about its history and about the history of Sheikh Jarrah. And we have a few slides that I wanted to put up. Um, so I'm going to actually start off in 1918 at the end of the First World War. And for those of you who don't know too much about Palestinian history, Palestine, along with most of the Levant, had been under um, Ottoman rule, that, that is um, Turkish, Turkish rule, up until 1918. Uh, and in, in the sort of period of the First World War, First of all, uh, British forces, along with Australians and New Zealand forces, came over from Egypt through Gaza up towards Jerusalem and slowly started conquering that territory. And this is the moment where, which gave birth to a lot of the states that now exist. So uh, the uh, southern Levant basically fell under a British sphere of influence in which British Mandate Palestine was set up, as was um, Jordan. And then in the north of the Levant, uh, we had the creation of Lebanon, which was carved out of uh, greater Syria. Now, historically, none of these borders had really existed. So this is a sort of a very formative time. But one of the first things that the British did when they, um, when they captured Jerusalem, which was just before Christmas in 1917, in fact, um, Lloyd George, the then prime, uh, British Prime Minister, described the capture of Jerusalem as a Christmas present to the British people, which perhaps gives us a sense of how Jerusalem was regarded. But one of the first things that they did, even before they, uh, before urban planners had arrived in, in, in Jerusalem, was to start doing urban plans for Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem had changed quite radically through the course of the 19th century. In the 1850s, it became an administrative centre for the Ottoman Empire, and it very rapidly it sort of went through a process of suburbanisation with the setting up of leafy middle-class garden suburbs, people moving out of the old city and, and setting up these kind of new modern estates. Now, the urban plan that you can see on your screen here, um, it actually was never, never actually brought into fruition, partially because actually much of West Jerusalem had already been built by this stage. But it does give you a bit of a sense of how the city uh, kind of um, functioned. So actually, if we can go, yeah, thank you. So if we actually have a look, you can see you can see the old city in the centre there, and this sort of grid plan, which which was the sort of the new, what was known as in those days the new city, and this was the sort of the modern suburbs. This was the people as people became more affluent, as the middle, you know, there was this rise of the middle class. People started to move out. Now Sheikh Jarrah was part of that, and it sort of sat on the edge of it. What you can see on the uh, the east side, on the, the right-hand side of this map, however, is a fairly sort of empty space. I mean, we have Silwan, which is to the um, the southeast, uh, which is a very uh, ancient village that's um, very very near the old city and is now very much part of Jerusalem. But actually, this area was, uh, you know, it was it was partially very mountainous and uh, did have some villages, but it was sort of it was it was much less populated. So when we think about this division of East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem that happens in 1948, 
really what we're talking about is actually the old city being being cut off, you know, from this kind of, you know, this modern hub of modern Jerusalem that developed in the 19th and early 20th century. And um, if we go to the next slide, I think, you know, we can start to see some of the sort of the contemporary impacts there. And actually, this map gives us a sense of what Jerusalem is like uh, relatively recently. We can see the sort of the um, West Jerusalem, which is blanked out there, which which is in Israeli territory. But we can also see the line of where the Green Line, which is the um, the, the division between uh, 1948 and the sort of the, the West Bank. And then we get a sense of um, the sort of the built-up areas around it. So the um, the, the sort of mustard-coloured are uh, uh, Arab areas. The blue-coloured uh, areas are uh, Israeli settlements. So it sort of gives you a sense of how how complicated this um, this sort of jigsaw of contemporary Jerusalem is. To give you a sense of how how big the geography is, um, you can see Bethlehem in the south there, just beneath the um, the red line, and that is, I mean, to put it in Australian terms, it's probably about the distance of Preston to Melbourne CBD. And then in the north, uh, we can see at the very top of the map there, Ramallah, to give you a sort of a sense of that, that's probably about the distance of Strathfield to Sydney CBD. So this is not, you know, this is not a sort of a large space. Now, Sheikh Jarrah, if we flick to the next slide, it is immediately outside the old city walls to the north. So as you're walking out of Damascus Gate, you're immediately faced with Nablus Road, which is one of the major streets. Slightly to the east of that, you've got Salah Hadin Street, which again is another sort of very important street in, 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 in Sheikh Jarrah. And um, if you sort of see to slightly to the west of that, you can see these, um, these dotted lines, which mark out exactly where the, the green line was. So Sheikh Jarrah, it really sits on this, even though it's in East Jerusalem, it's to the north of the old city, and it really sits on this seam line between east and west. And if we think about, you know, the sort of the historical sort of commercial and cultural centre of Jerusalem, it was it was partially in Sheikh Jarrah and partially just in this sort of this eastern area here where you can see some of these um, these more sort of tan coloured areas, you know, places like Mamilla Road, Jaffa Street, etc. Now, the thing about Sheikh Jarrah, it's very easy to think of it as a, as a ghetto, you know, seeing these images, um, seeing this sort of like, you know, this plastic chairs being thrown around and all of this sort of stuff. But actually, this area, it, it, it is one of the sort of, uh, particularly after 1948, it became one of the major cultural centres of East Jerusalem. You know, it houses a lot of important Palestinian institutions. It houses things like the Palestinian National Theatre. It houses Dar al-Tifl, which is the um, the folklore museum. It has Dar al-Saf Nashashibi, which is the um, the literary and cultural centre. It also hosts a lot of important cultural institutions, like the uh, foreign cultural institutions, like Ecole Biblique or uh, the Kenyan Institute, which both sponsor a lot of research. And you know, when it was first built, it was you know it was this very leafy garden suburb. It was Muslim elites who were moving out of the old city and and kind of establishing these sort of spaces. Another very important institution is the American Colony, which um, you know ha- was a, a very fundamental uh, cultural institution in Jerusalem. Uh, they had their fingers in a whole bunch of different pies, from commercial interests through to cultural interests. They've left us one of the largest photographic archives of late Ottoman and Mandate. Palestine um, 
in existence, which is in the America, uh, in the Library of Congress now. So, you know, when we see these images, it's not just a question of displacement that we're dealing with. We're actually talking about a space in which there, there is cultural institutions and a cultural space that is under attack. And I think the threat of these sorts of things is very real. In fact, people are now describing this as potentially a third intifada. But if we think back to the second intifada, institutions like Orient House, which was the Palestinian diplomatic, the, the Palestinian Authority diplomatic mission in East Jerusalem, which was just off the Nablus Road, was actually closed down during this period. All of the computers were taken, all of the files were taken. And even though it was protected under the Oslo Accords, it was it was done very specifically to seal sovereign, Israeli sovereignty over East Jerusalem. So when we think about what's going on in Sheikh Jarrah, it, it's, it's not just about the displacement of people, which is horrible enough, but it's also about actively trying to undermine Palestinian culture in this city. And I think that we need to be really sort of conscious of how the cultural plays alongside, you know, the political, you know. I, I think that this um, sort of starts to raise a whole bunch of questions about the viability of Palestinian life in the city. And, uh, I mean, certainly uh, spending time in Jerusalem over the last 15 years, we see a lot of Palestinian youth who are no longer kind of going out in East Jerusalem. A lot of places are closing down. They either go over to the west uh, side of Jerusalem where, you know, they often feel uncomfortable or they head to Ramallah of an evening or Bethlehem. So there is a sort of a cultural constriction that's going on alongside this. And I think as we sort of see this constant Judaization and settlement activity that's going on in, um, in East Jerusalem, we need to be really conscious not just of, of protecting people and, and stopping the displacement of people, but also stopping the displacement of culture, because this is part of the broader displacement. This has sort of been a very long-term strategy, whether we, whether we think about the, the materials, the cultural materials that have wound up in Israeli archives that are very, very rarely made available to Palestinians, you know, either from the Nakba or the theft of material from the Palestinian Research Centre in Beirut during the, uh, the civil war and the Israeli invasion. Just two days ago, the IDF broke into uh, Dar Yusuf uh, Jasser in Bethlehem, one of the, one of the sort of uh, new contemporary art institutions in, in, in Bethlehem, and a lot of material was taken there and, the, you know, there was damage to the building. So I think we need to be thinking really in very, you know, multiple layers of terms about what's going on in Jerusalem. It's not just a, a question of people, but also a broader question of some sort of Palestinian culture. I think particularly within the context of the ID system and seeing how Palestinians are prevented from coming from the West Bank, people with Palestinian ID in the West Bank are prevented from coming to Jerusalem, this sort of colonization takes on these multiple layers, which, um, which is a, a very disturbing development. Next on the Nakba webinar, presented by Free Palestine Melbourne, was Nessa Mashni, Vice President of Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, and presenter of the Palestine Remembered program every Saturday morning. So first I'd like to also acknowledge the fact that I'm on Wurundjeri land, and particularly as a Palestinian, one of the things that is very challenging for me is as a settler living on unceded and colonised land. So Wurundjeri elders past and present and emerging my deepest respects, and I acknowledge that this land, um, that sovereignty has never been ceded. Um, and that your connection to your land is long and as deeply rooted as ours. 
and that our shared struggles uh, of indigeneity will ensure that our freedom and justice will prevail at some point. I'm not very often intimidated and I don't actually get nervous, but when Tasnima asked me to join this panel, I was like, you know, it's a pretty smart panel, I'm a bit of a dummy. But uh, she made me feel a little bit more comfortable that I had something to offer. And, and something I want to share with you is, in fact, my father's journey in, uh, in Australia and, and his journey particularly with respect to activism and, and where we stand today as Palestinian activists at, on a precipice of something very, very exciting. My father came to Australia in the 50s as a stateless person. He spent a couple of years in internment in Shepparton and then um, managed to, to make it to Melbourne and get a job, etc., I uh, met my mum in the 60s. He told her that he was already married. She said, what are you doing here then if you're already married? He said, well, I'm married to Palestine. And my mother uh, tells a story that he, he kind of wished that she that he'd had another wife because she'd have had a fair fight against another woman, but she could never compete with Palestine. Um, I attended my first rally in my mum's valley, late 1969. Our land room was the epicentre of all things Palestine. And, and I say that from the point of view of we didn't have an ambassador then. This was before Ali Kazakh came and before Palestine became really quite organised in the sense of embassies and so forth. Our land room smelt like coffee. The smell of um, cigarettes just permeated throughout the whole house. So um, we had a very, very tough time back then in, in, in the 60s and 70s. And particularly because Australia, like Israel, they share the same mythology. Terranolics here in Australia and in Palestine, a land without people for a people without a land. Hollywood did its great work. Paul Newman, the movie Exodus, uh, the concept of the kibbutz and the socialist ideal. We made the desert bloom. All of these great lies uh, that Zionists uh, perpetuated to increase their uh, connection to the land, but also to remove our connection, as, as Sari was touching on earlier on. In the early 70s, our friends at that time were, my father called them the correct Labour Party, that was actually the far left of the Labour Party, and they were dear friends uh, of my late fathers, like John Halfpenny, Bill Hartley, George Crawford. These were um, uh, very principled men of, of the Labour Party back then. My father facilitated a delegation to go to Beirut to meet with uh, President Arafat in, in the early 70s, and that was the, the bedrock, if you will, the start of that sort of connection for, for the Labour Party with Palestine. Sadly, as Bob Hawke and that right-wing section of the Labour Party took control, Bob Hawke gets elected and, you know, his uh, Zionist, Zionism in his DNA uh, really took the Labour Party off on a tangent that made things so very different for the Labour Party as we might have hoped for it to be back then. The 70s also saw the late King Hussein come to Australia in, in, in 1976. That was my first, uh, as a six-year-old, our house was raided by ASIO. Uh, we were put under arbitrary arrest. Uh, there was a belief at the time that perhaps my father might lead some sort of mission against uh, King Hussein. Look back now, it was really, really quite funny, but um, wasn't. I can't imagine it was much fun then. 76 was also another pivotal year. In 1976, uh, my father drove to Melbourne University with a, a, a late dear friend, David Dejeni, to meet with a young John Karkar, who later became a most eminent Queen's Council and an active supporter, uh, and a Palestinian active supporter of ours, obviously. Um, and he met with um, my father and Pepe Dejeni, met with John Karkar, who was then a tutor at the University of Melbourne. 
and he had um, Sari's father, Eddie Zanamiri's uh, second year uh, American University of Beirut Certificate of Architecture. And um, as John tells it, he was ordered to find a place in the architecture facility for, for Eddie Zanamiri. And amazingly, you know, less than half an hour later, John Kaka came back and had found a, a place for Eddie, and he was registered as a third-year student in architecture. So uh, a bit amazing. What, what's particularly amazing is the Zionist campaign, he was able to do that, but the Zionist campaign against Eddie was just Orwellian in proportion, etc. He was at the time the, the vice president of the uh, General Union of Palestinian Students, uh, and a really active and, and dear friend, and as you can tell from his uh, son, obviously a, a, a great guy. Dad exhausted himself endeavouring to empower Palestinians. Um, if we go back to that, that 70s and 80s and even into the early 90s, if, if you said you were Palestinian, you'd hear people would reciprocate with, are you Pakistan? And they say, no, no, Palestine. And we try and explain to them where Jesus was born. It was, is uh, often something we used to say to uh, try and geographically locate us to, to the layperson. But, you know, it was Pakistan. Palestinians that came to Australia generally came in that sort of civil war period of um, uh, Lebanon in, in the late 70s, early 80s, and they came to escape. And they got here, and the first thing they did, many of them, was immediately deny their Palestinians. You know, they would say, well, Lebanese, we're Jordanian, Syrian, or Egyptian. They just didn't want the pain or damage or challenge that being a Palestinian might associate with. And... Um, you know, my father was, I'm proud of Palestinian, you can be proud of Palestinian, don't deny your, your right to be who you are. But also, also, and this is, you know, the thing that my father held so dearly to himself, was you made it out, you owe it to those that are still back there. Often that, more often than not, sadly, that plea fell on deaf ears. And in fact, it fell on such deaf ears that those, that, uh, many of that generation of Palestinians didn't even educate their children on Palestine. Endeavouring, thinking they were teching their children by not teaching them about Palestine, denying them their connection to their roots and endeavouring to smooth a road for themselves, if you will. And so, so many Palestinians in the early stage endeavoured to assimilate themselves in this colonial state. You know, they didn't realise that they were settlers here. And so when we talk about intersectionality today, I'm so proud of of our Palestinian community today and of Tony understanding us. And I know that I've been going to Invasion Day Rebels for, I think, 17 or 18 years, or close to 20 years, that that contingent of Palestinians keeps increasing. Um, and I'm so proud that this generation understands the connectedness of our struggles. Um, but it was a huge challenge back then. And, and I'm particularly proud this past week, what the, the thing I can take away, aside from the pain and the suffering and the dread of the cataclysmic and brutal murder of our people in, in Gaza and, and the dozens now killed in, in the West Bank and the pogroms happening within 48 Palestine is the rise of that next generation here in, in Australia in their activism, in the being activated, in their leadership. And, and as, as much as that's empowering to see that generation, it's so awesome to see that it's predominantly women-led and it gives me such great, such great pride that that, that effort, uh, what my father flagellated himself, absolutely beat himself. I mean, we were raised by my, my mother. Dad was an absentee person to us. To see that, you know, that hard work wasn't wasted, that in fact, you know, the Palestinian movement in Australia is well-led and 
I'd hate to be a Zionist trying to sell that shit that they're trying to sell 10 years from now when when these kids, and I'll say kids because I'm, I'm, I'm now an elder, I'm 12, um, that when these kids really hit their straps. The work never stopped. President Arafat died in 2004. Uh, Sonia Kaka, John Kaka's wife, and I had a meeting about what we might do. And from there, the, we had a new ambassador come to Australia, a little bit more sophisticated. And from that, um, some thoughts and things that we, we might, how we might end up, Australians for Palestine was born. And from that, we endeavoured to create a more polished lobby group, if you will. That's now morphed into the Australia Palestine Advocacy Network, which is a national peak representative body with, with lobby, we do media stuff, youth engagement. Um, I'm so proud of the Black Palestine Conference that uh, so many that are on here and, and uh, some of our panellists were huge drivers in, in, in late 19. And our movement now is so diverse and so empowered. It's led by youth, the intersectionality and connectedness of the Palestinian struggle, but also with our Indigenous brothers and sisters here and Indigenous peoples all over the world. You know, I'm sure our liberation isn't too far away. Sorry, spoke about um, Sheikh Jarrah, but I just want to just quickly touch on a couple of things about why why those expulsions, not evictions, expulsions, are so triggering for us as Palestinians. As Palestinians, we grew up, as Shams showed in her story, and um, Sari could, or Antestin could both talk about their own stories, we were told these stories through quivering lips of our grandparents and parents. The pain was visceral. Watching those expulsions, watching those expulsions is high definition replaying of that trauma 73 years ago. For us, whether we're in 48 Palestine, the West Bank, Gaza, or refugees around the world, seeing that reminds us of what happened, and we're not letting it happen again. We're not letting it happen again. That level of ethnic cleansing is not going to happen on our watch. So that's one of the things that Israel does with respect to Jerusalem, is it issues a special identification to separate Palestinians from each other. 48 Palestinians are citizens of the State of Israel. Jerusalem Palestinians carry a blue ID. Uh, West Bank uh, Palestinians carry a green ID. Refugees don't have any ID. Gazans have a separate ID. Well, the Palestinians within Jerusalem are not citizens. They're permanent residents of a state that doesn't allow them to vote or recognise them. As, uh, they need to prove that Jerusalem is the centre of their life. Since 1967, when Israel conquered Jerusalem, and the West Bank, some 20,000 Palestinians have had their uh, residency revoked. And that's all part of a policy to Judaize Jerusalem. It's ethnic cleansing. The Nakba didn't finish in 1948. It's ongoing, and we saw its most recent manifestation in Shekhtera. We know what this is, which is why we're, we're making sure that they won't, we won't let them do it again. Very quickly, I just want to talk uh, quickly about DFAT. DFAT asked for... Australians, their thoughts on a free trade deal with Israel. And the reality of our trade with Israel is that it would heavily advantage Israel because we're net importers. And the bulk of our import is, in fact, military stuff from Elbert systems. Elbert promotes itself worldwide as the world-leading exponent of military technologies, etc. But they're proud. On their website, it says, battle-tested. And what we're seeing in Gaza today is battle testing. They're, they take this technology around the world and say, it works, have a look how good it is. 
whether it's drones, whether it's um, border control sensors, it's facial recognition software, it's all of the artificial intelligence that the Palestinians that rose up to defend Al-Aqsa all got a text message saying, we geotagged your phone as being at Aqsa during these protests. We're coming to get you. We're coming to get you. This is the sort of technology, whether it's phone tracking and phone hacking, geotagging, etc., that Israel sells to repressive regimes all over the world. Now, our Australian Defence Forces looks like they're cancelling their contract with Albert, and they're cancelling it not out of a principal decision because they want to deal with war criminals and um, a, a country that is occupying brutally an Indigenous people, but they're cancelling them because when we're doing Australia, we're doing war games with the United States. The United States actually takes precautions against uh, against Australian forces because we use this Albert stuff, because allegedly they don't even trust what's going on there. This is after giving them $4 billion a year in military aid. To give you an idea of where Australia is, Australia is one of a handful of countries that actively lobbied the International Criminal Court to say that you do not have jurisdiction in Palestine. I mean, just the level of you know, we're the same guys as you would, would beg it to believe. And I know I probably have gone over a little bit of time. Sorry, Justin. I just want to finish with why Palestine is so important. And, and particularly to those people that are watching today, Palestine is so important because the far right, whether that's Modi or Bojo or Orban or Duterte in um, the Philippines or Bolsaro in, um, in Brazil, the far right knows that Palestine's the first domino. The struggle against Zionism, a supremacist colonial mindset that has only been successful for 73 years, it's 100 and something years old, I'm 21 years old, that this domino is the first domino in the global struggle of humanity, the global struggle of humanity against colonialism, racism and inequality. And there's a reason. There is a reason they are fighting so hard to keep Israel. There's a reason they get that support. There's a reason that Netanyahu and Orban, an anti-Semite who ran a campaign with bus signs saying they, George Soros, they are trying to steal this election. There's a reason that he is friends with Orban, he's friends with all of these people, and they're friends with him, is that this is the domino, the domino in the fight against colonialism, racism, and inequality. And this is why they're protecting Israel. And they know to lose Israel, to lose Israel is not losing the battle. It is the war. So Palestine needs you. Justice needs you. We need you. And together, uh, we will see a world that we will be proud to give to our children. Finally, on the NACBA webinar presented by Free Palestine Melbourne, Dr. Geordie Silverstein. Geordie is a Jewish historian based in Melbourne and a member of the Australian Jewish Democratic Society. So I want to start by acknowledging that I'm on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to Elders past and present and to any First Nations people who are here tonight. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I take this seriously. These are not just words to me, as I'm sure they're not just words for everyone else here. They're central to the kind of life that I want to lead, that I try to lead, while living as an uninvited guest, as a coloniser on these lands. Part of my family came here as stateless refugees, Jewish survivors of the Holocaust, and this inflects what I say and how I live my life. It means that I live as a descendant of exiles, and I'm also a settler. 
I have a responsibility with my presence here. I've learned so much from Indigenous peoples, from their creativity, their resistance, their politics, their imagination, their celebration, the way they articulate and describe the world, their staunchness. And I'm humbled to be here speaking on this panel. And while I'm here to talk about solidarity, I want to be clear that I learned so much of my practices of solidarity from all of the other people on this panel, as well as from many others. They all have modelled for me the idea of Palestinians and First Nations peoples and Jews working together, looking out for each other, taking each other's concerns and political projects seriously, supporting their resistance. These people always show up for Jews, and I'm humbled, grateful and honoured to have this opportunity to show up for them now. And it's been clear on social media in recent days that Palestinians in general model how to work in solidarity and show up for others while asserting their claims for justice and freedom. I've learned and am learning so much. I'm also very aware of my own necessary inadequacy in speaking tonight, so I hope what I have to say here is useful for some, but please know that I know my place and that I'm very much still learning, thinking and growing. This work is never done. But solidarity is a practice. It is not mere words that we say, although it is also words. It's choosing the right words, speaking the truth, a truth which Israel wants us not to know, as Tony said, and as everyone has said. Palestinians are clear that what is going on is settler colonialism. They explain how it is so, what this means, what it entails and looks like. They theorise and describe with precision and insight. And so we all must say settler colonialism. We must say that the Nakba continues and that what Palestinians face is nothing short of genocide. We must say that Palestinians have the right of return to all of the land from the river to the sea. We recognise that the violence that Israel produces and imposes is not unique but it's part of a long history of settler colonial actions around the world. This violence is breathtaking in its force and effects. We said settler colonialism cannot stand, that our solidarity has to involve taking tangible actions where we live and seeing the connections from here to over there. It is clear that Australia and Israel are connected, not just because both are settler colonies and thus maintain similar regimes, practices and ideas of how to enact violence and where that violence is directed, but also because Australia engages militarily and economically with Israel. There is talk of a new free trade agreement, as has been mentioned, and we must oppose it. Similarly, of Elbert Systems, as Nasser just mentioned. And I just add that Victoria, our supposedly incredibly progressive state that is a pursuer of genocide here and also has an ongoing agreement with Elbert Systems, and that's something we need to oppose. Israel is a massive arms dealer internationally. An Israeli organisation, Hamushim, does important work documenting this, showing the ways that wars across the world are connected. Our resistance needs to be connected, as it already is. Melanie K. Kantrovitz, a Jewish writer, wrote that, and I quote, solidarity is the political version of love. That resonates with me. She talks about the need to learn from Jewish history to, and I quote, build with allies an urgent and powerful opposition to all hatred. This is a love which I think is generous and capable. It is humble. It is powerful. It is open and bold. It is about showing up even when inconvenient, but also not looking for the inconvenience, instead looking for the possibilities that are on offer and grasping them with a full heart. I've been thinking for days about how to speak here, about what will be useful, what I can offer. It's been challenging. And I've returned, as I often do, to the work of these Jewish diasporas who have come before me. And it's notable that in this moment, Israelis and Zionists still, for the most part, cling to an idea of two states, 
that sees some sort of self-determination in the nation state that by design excludes. It's awful. For those who are in Kailani Kawanui's talk this morning, um, you'll know this. And if you weren't there, I encourage you to find the recording, which I think Tasneem has already shared on Facebook and which will be floating around. But in her talk, um, Kailani spoke about the limitations on the imagination and on possibilities that international law and the international regime of nation states imposes by linking self-determination and decolonization to the nation state. We need instead, she showed, a practice of decolonization that's not tethered to the establishment of nation states. The state is not the answer. So instead I turn to the work of these Jewish diasporas who reject the co-joining of nation and state, who say that Jewishness exceeds that limitation, that self-determination for Jews is not found in the building of a state with borders and Jewish hegemony and exclusivity, but in living amongst others and living across borders. This diasporism is a consciously anti-racist practice. It avoids divisions into groups, recognising that those divisions are created in order to alienate people from each other. Elisha Hutt, an, an Iraqi Jew, writes of the ways that Mizrahi Jews or Arab Jews are separated by Zionist thinking from the rest of the Middle East. And she argues against such divisions and the violence that they enact. We need to live in the multiplicity of diasporic connections, she shows. Jonathan and Daniel Boyarin write that, and I quote, what we wish to struggle for theoretically is a notion of identity in which there are only slaves but no masters. That is an alternative to the model of self-determination, which is, after all, in itself a Western imperialist imposition on the rest of the world. Jews, they show, have always come from somewhere else. Living amongst others in those elsewhere places is not a sign of lack or of inadequacy, despite what Theodore Herzl and other key Zionists might have said in the past and still say today. Instead, it's a sign of possibility and openness. We are at our best when we are living amongst others, dependent upon each other for life, justice and safety. We as Jews need to reject clearly the idea that living amongst others makes us weak. It is a foul idea. And yet it persists. It is an idea that is part of this political project that we see in action today that says that Jews attain power when they have an army, when they have control. But I, along with many others, want to argue for a form of power that is not about control. Kay Kantrovitz writes that, and I quote again, diasporism represents tension, resistance to both assimilation and nostalgia, to both corporate globalisation that destroys people and, and cultures, and to nationalism which promises to preserve people and cultures, but so often distorts them through the prisms of masculinism, racism and militarism. Jews are not the only people with diasporas, and as Kay Kantrovitz makes clear, this means that we have a ground for speaking with other diasporas, a point of commonality, a language and a practice through which we can articulate and work together. But I want to also be clear, this does not mean that I'm speaking for other diasporas, nor that I'm speaking for what self-determination, liberation or decolonization can or should mean for others. I'm very clear that solidarity means not speaking for others. It means listening to and supporting Palestinian and First Nations projects for their own self-determination and decolonization. A few of us put together a statement from Jews in Australia, clearly opposing what is being done to Palestinians. In it, we say, in part, that we are angered beyond words and that we condemn the military and police attacks on Muslims praying at Al-Aqsa, the stealing of homes in Sheikh Jarrah, the fascist mobs beating up Palestinians in Lid, in Netanya, in Haifa and throughout 48, the bombings in Gaza and the ongoing settler violence in the West Bank, that we actively oppose colonialism wherever it appears. 
We call on the media in this country to do better in their reporting and we call on people to support BDS. There are currently around 350 signatories. For the context, this is a huge number of people and groups signing on. Change is happening. Solidarity is what will bring change. We must show up when asked. The Palestinian general strike that we are now seeing in the last 24 hours, the Unity Intifada as it has been named, is enormously exciting and inspiring. And the growth of focus on Palestine and Palestinians over the last week, the growth of the number of people who are prepared to say and do something is, it seems to me, encouraging. The sense of possibility that is on offer in this current moment is not to be understated, I don't think. We need to seize on it and help it grow. We need to name the violence and name the resistance. Revel in the bravery that we are seeing from Palestine and Palestinians and join their call. Take a risk. It's up to each of us to find the ways that that is possible. It might be a difficult conversation, signing a petition, sharing something on social media, reading, coming to a rally, being clear that Palestinians must be allowed to return to their homes and must not face the ongoing violence that they do. Talking to your workplace about BDS and how you can be involved. Not buying soda streams. Don't buy Obelo Hummus. Don't buy Copper Pot or Red Rock Deli dips. It will also be about learning, be learning about Indigenous deaths in custody here in the settler colony we live in, seeing the connections between military and police in the settler colonies and the racialized and racist ways in which they enforce state power. Listen and learn. Show up. Allow yourself to be led, but also to take action. Palestinians can't do everything. We need to work for them and with them. Thanks for listening. And Dr. Geordie Silverstone was the final panellist in the NACPA webinar presented by Free Palestine Melbourne. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to community since 1976. CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. As much as we are lied to that what is happening in Palestine is complicated, there is nothing complicated about it. Israel maintains a regime of apartheid, ethnic cleansing and occupation. None of these concepts are new. They have all existed in some form throughout history. This nation is founded on settler colonialism. Drawing parallels between our struggles doesn't only shed light on the commonality of different social justice issues, but it also shows us that as Palestinians, our freedom and liberation is so inherently intertwined with the freedom and liberation of so many others around the world. 3CR Radio Time, community-powered radio. To donate, call 03 03- 94198377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au States are talking big and spending up with no intention to disarm. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons provides a pathway out of this mess, and it's up to us to get our government on board. Tune in to ICANN's Banned School to learn more 
and be part of History in the Making. It's five online sessions from June to September. Check it out and enrol at icanw.org.au forward slash band school. That's icanw.org.au forward slash band school. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons is a 3CR supporter. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. A few billion dollars worth of new fighter jets throw in a new attack class submarine, an aircraft carrier, and that's just the big ones. No expense spared. But what about other countries? Are they also going gung-ho in spending their citizens' hard-earned dollars on the war machines? Not so, according to Dr. Alison Oinoskin, who argues that as the US and NATO allies are cutting defence spending in preparation for economic reconstruction in a post-COVID world, Australia is increasing its spending on expensive weapons that will not deter any potential aggression in the slightest. Alison, it's not just you who's been arguing against increased military spending. I believe there is a global campaign on military spending. Are you aware of this? I really don't know, but SIPRI, the Swedish Institute, has been keeping figures on the costs of war for years and years and years on military expenditure, and they put out a report every year. But there's a cost of war project in the United States that's also been running for a very long time at Brown University. Their annual report is also very reliable and very well worth looking at. Australia, on the other hand, isn't nearly as open with our expenditure as those two institutions are. It's really very hard for the ordinary taxpayer to find out how much Australia is spending on war. You have to comb through the fine print of the budget to find it, and then it's all broken up into bits and pieces that make it very difficult for you to put an actual total on it. In fact, I have to pay credit to ASPE of all organisations and thank them for looking at the latest budget and coming out with it. Of course, what they wanted uh, was to print the government was spending as much as it is spending. They thought that was uh, pretty terrific because, in fact, what Australia is doing, and this is shown in ASPE's latest figures on the the latest defence budget or the defence element of the latest budget, is Australia is increasing expenditure while many other countries in the world are actually decreasing theirs. 
including some of the major countries that you would not expect. Well, well we've got to ask the question, why? Why are we increasing it? For the same reason that we spend it, because the United States tells us to. Everything we do in defence is done because the United States tells us to. Or we go and ask them, would you like us to? And of course they say yes. And that's what we've been doing for years and years and years. And the result is that in the last two decades, following, for instance, uh, events of September 2001, Australia's security spending expanded by more than has ever it has ever before. Even though we were supposedly not at war, we were fighting terror. But, you know, the Defence Department budget in that period increased by 291%, which is just an eye-watering amount. And ASIO by even more, and ASIS by more than that. These percentages are just colossal. And when you take into account the fact that the defence budget is not subject to an efficiency dividend the way all other government departments are. In other words, they can just name a number and get the money and spend it. They don't have to be accountable. You might well wonder why it is that we've had Conservative governments going on and on and on about it for nearly two decades about debt and deficit and the irresponsibility of their opponents in running up what they call government debt. Whereas now, not only are they spending these colossal amounts on defence, but they seem to be taking advantage of the virus, the pandemic, to spend whatever they like on that too, or call whatever they're spending something that has to do with combating the virus. And the, the wonderful contrast when you think about it is that they're spending unheard of amounts on defence to kill people and they're spending unheard of amounts on measures against the pandemic, which is supposed to save people's lives. I can't understand the logic of it myself and I really wonder why Australians swallow it so meekly. What's Labor's record over the last couple of decades? I don't have their defence spending because quite uh, figures in front of me because quite frankly they haven't been in government for long enough to do anything much about that except that during this century the only times when we've had Labour governments they've actually reduced our defence presence overseas uh, as always and that would have meant that the defence budget would have fallen but the thing is all Australian governments are under pressure constantly from the United States to raise our level of defence expenditure to above 2% of GDP. Now, when you consider the fact that our aid budget has shrunk to a minuscule 0.5 or something percent of GDP, and when we claim that we haven't got enough money to spend on aged care and education and health, it really does blow the mind a bit. And the sad thing about the opposition is that although they haven't spent as much, they don't oppose defence policy and they don't oppose foreign policy. And so there's no real resistance to all of this coming from Labour. Are the figures available to show where that spending goes, whether it's spent here in Australia or whether it's spent mainly in the US or European countries? The big ticket items in the latest budget, for instance, 
and the latest budget says that they will spend in this financial year, 21-22, $44.6 billion. That's an increase of 6.1% over the year before. That will be for the Department of Defense and the Australian Signals Directorate. Now, the big ticket items in that are building ships for the Navy, the cost of which is going to double from the $1.6 billion that we spent last year to apparently $2.5 billion in this financial year, and most of that is for submarines and future frigates. Those amounts themselves are likely to rise because they always claim that what they're going to spend is less than what actually turns out these things turn out to cost. The submarine is, of course, one of the worst, but as well as that, because uh, we're spending $126 million each for 72 F-35 fighters. Just imagine if one of those crashed, $126 million goes to dust, and we're going to pay much more than that amount for their maintenance and support services, all of which, as you say, comes from the United States because it's locked into contracts that they will not give us. They give the technology to the Israelis, but they won't give it to us. We have to buy it from the United States manufacturers every time. And those jet fighters, over a whole lifetime, whatever that lifetime is, I can't tell you how many years, but their lifetime cost is each one, US dollars, $1.6 billion, even worse about the Lockheed Martin F-35 is that their, their usefulness has not been proved. There are warnings about using them. You're only allowed to use them in certain conditions. There are all kinds of faults with the planes, and all the users are on warning about the extent to which they can actually use these things. So it really takes the breath away. Now, I've mentioned the Navy and I've mentioned the Air Force. When you're talking defense money, all the free services have all got to have something. So the army has to have something. And the army has been given for its land 400 program $2.5 billion in the coming year to be spent on 75 main battle tanks with more, uh, sorry, additional billion for heavy tracked combat vehicles. Now, neither the battle tanks nor the heavy track combat vehicles are going to be of any use in Australia because if there was an emergency, they'd have to be put on a train or a truck and got there for over huge distances before they could do anything to combat some sort of land invasion and likely to be in conditions where their tracks would be of no use at all. And so what are they for? Well, presumably, they're for putting on ships and taking them to some other war where they are required. This, again, is the old story. We fight America's wars for them. We don't defend our own country. Also in that defence budget, are there any figures for the upkeep and the upgrading of bases here in Australia? They're supposed to be US slash Australian bases. Do you know any figures on that? I don't have the latest figures on what the construction of the new bases is going to involve. I should look that up, but the construction of bases is not a massive amount compared to the kinds of things I was just talking about. And after all, 
if we construct them, they belong to us, as, as for instance, we paid the cost of construction of Pine Gap. That doesn't necessarily mean that we control what goes on inside them. And most recently, there's been an announcement that we're going to extend the range of bases in inside and near Darwin in order to allow for the Americans to use those places for maintenance and storage of their own military equipment. Now, this itself digs us even further, further even deeper into the hole that we're already in of full interoperability with the United States. Now, ASPE that I mentioned before is totally in favor of this. They think the more interoperability with the United States, the more we have, the more likely the United States is to defend Australia. Not at all. The United States will defend a base of its own, possibly, if it's critical. But if it means getting into a land war with China, they won't. Quite frankly, a lot of Australia would be regarded as sacrificial, just as it was in the Second World War, when Britain wouldn't, couldn't come to Australia's defence, and Australia had to resort to its American ally to get defended. Now, that is exactly what would happen if there were to be this war between China and the United States. The bases in Australia would immediately become targets in that war, not only the ones in Darwin and elsewhere in, in the north, but particularly Pine Gap, because Pine Gap is crucial to American to targeting of American drone flights elsewhere in the world. And the Americans do this without consult consultation with Australia. So we have no control over the wars that the United States is in effect fighting elsewhere in the world. That makes it critical. It would make it critical if there were to be a war with China for Pine Gap to be taken up pronto. My guess, and I hope I'm wrong, is that that is what the Chinese would want to do, and they would not be resisted because they would be showing the United States what could happen to them if they didn't notice what they're prepared to do to a minor ally, a small country in the South Pacific, which is how China regards its state. A related maybe issue is the money Australia spends on training and equipping armies in countries like Indonesia, the Philippines, Myanmar. I haven't looked at those numbers in the budget because, again, like the, um, the construction of facilities in Darwin, they're not sort of huge ticket items. One of the things that worries me when we do that sort of thing is that sometimes the budgets quote those numbers as if they come from our aid budget because we're doing sort of training and stuff in various countries, which I think is fairly much sleight of hand. But again, the question arises, in my mind at least, is why is it that Australia always has to be doing training? I mean, why train the Afghan army when the Afghans have been fighting wars for two centuries and have never lost any? What training is for, and this is what we do in Indonesia and in, in the Philippines, is backing up the government against its own internal enemies. And so you have to ask yourself what this training actually does for the defence of Australia. We, for instance, sent in mid-2019 Orion aircraft and some land trainers into the southern Philippines. 
what used to be called the MNLF, the Moro National Liberation Front, has since become uh, accused of being an Islamic State organization. The latest same enemy under a new name attacked the city of uh, Marawi uh, in the southern Philippines and besieged it. And there was a bit of a panic for a few months. And Australians went in uh, at the request, apparently, of both the United States and the Philippines, uh, along with Americans, to train the Philippine army. Now, the Philippine army knows what's going on on the ground in the southern Philippines. They've been fighting them for decades. In fact, for more than 100 years, without success, simply because these are people whose traditions go back even further for centuries. They are pirates and fishermen and people who make a living from trading across the sea, legally or illegally. And they hate the government in Manila, which is Christian, and it's mutual because they're Muslims. Their various forms of resistance to the Christian government in Manila is sometimes looks like terrorism, sometimes it just looks like various forms of kidnapping and sabotage and so on. But why Australia or the United States has any business in getting into training in such an area, you have to ask yourself. And the answer, obviously, is because we are there to back up the government in Manila. And the same applies to backing up the government in Jakarta. It's got nothing in particular to do with human rights. It's got nothing to do with the defense of Australia. And it's so like what we've been doing ever since CETO, that you really wonder whether Australian foreign policy has moved forward at all. Well, when you look at what's happening in West Papua at the moment with the Australian-trained special forces there, it's a great worry. And, and the people there need our support. They don't need the support of the Australian government arming the military. Exactly. And... The problem in West Papua is comparable to what occurred in East Timor. And we ignored that for years too, because it didn't suit us to stir up trouble with the anti-communist government that we found in Jakarta. The people have been oppressed in successive regimes in Jakarta for years and years and years. And simply because they were anti-communist, as the government in Manila is, or the government nominally the government in Jakarta, that seems to be what we support. It has precious little to do with the human rights or living standards of the people concerned, either in East Timor or in West Papua. And the West Papuan people have clearly been oppressed and subjected to awful abuses for many years by Jakarta, and we say nothing. Now, if we are in their so-called training, the Indonesian Armed Forces. What that really means is that we're backing the Indonesian Armed Forces against their own citizens whose human rights are being abused. And yet, we go on and on, we do, and the United States does, about human rights. It really is the height of hypocrisy. Alison, what do you know about the countries who are actually decreasing their defence or offensive spending? Yeah, this is interesting, isn't it? I just found out about this recently because it's not the kind of thing that gets highly prominently re reported in Australia, I must say. But the United States and 
most of its NATO allies, I now find, they are still increasing their defence spending, but not nearly at the rate that I was just talking about that Australia is. Among the NATO allies, there's even one, Turkey, which has begun cutting its military budget, says that it's putting the savings towards health and social services. Turkey, of course, has massive problems with refugees. Countries like Turkey just are finding, it seems, that they would rather spend money on absolute needs of their citizens than on finding ways to kill people. Turkey is one of 13 states which were led by Colombia. A lot of the countries involved in this list are from uh, Latin America. So Colombia was the first where last year, following a campaign, campaign called the Global Campaign on Military Spending, they actually succeeded in putting enough pressure on the Colombian Congress to get um, a large number of Colombian pesos, several million at least, from military purposes into the health sector. And they were so successful with doing this that they pressed ahead and got more Congress people to agree that Colombia should not go ahead with buying 24 planes from Lockheed Martin. And that would save them 14 billion Colombian pesos. That's 4.5 billion US dollars. That was a success. And so many other countries noticed this, that similar cuts were put into place in Brazil, in China, in Russia, Saudi Arabia, South Korea, I mentioned Turkey before, Singapore, Pakistan, Algeria, Indonesia, Kuwait, and Chile. And in particular, in Chile, the government in Santiago is reducing its military spending by 4.9% in order to improve the response of the country to the health crisis. If these countries are actually putting into practice what the Secretary General of the United Nations a couple of years ago recommended, Enrico Guterres said he wanted countries to prioritize response to the health crisis over making war. In other words, save lives, don't destroy them. And these countries that I just mentioned, even though they are, several of them are big spenders on defense, are actually reducing the amount that they spend. I, for my own part, cannot see why Australia shouldn't join them. I would imagine that there's a big pushback from the, the massive arms manufacturing companies to these countries who are not buying their weapons. I'm not aware of what form that pushback would take, but we certainly know what kind of, of promotion the major arms companies that Australia deals with are putting on Australia, and it's constant. I mean, they have large offices in Canberra which are devoted to lobbying the Department of Defence and telling them what they ought to be buying, which the department then tells the government to buy, and the government says right, and they buy it. If you or your listeners have been through Canberra Airport lately, they will notice that the whole place is like a billboard for Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and BCA Systems and the rest of it. The, the whole box and dice, they're all there and they want to sell. 
killing machine, basically, to a government that is pretending to want to save lives. Again, it is a very curious contradiction. But the other aspect that Australians need to be aware of is that ASPE, which I mentioned at the beginning and paid them credit for their putting out the budget figures so, so clearly, are concerned about that because they get a huge amount of their funding subsidies from these very companies that I just mentioned. And so, I might add, does the Australian War Memorial, which itself is beginning to look like a bit of a billboard too. And also concerns about the involvement of these arms manufacturers in universities in Australia. Yes, I'm not aware of all of the details of this, except that to say that that would follow the United States pattern, which of course is egregious. Huge amounts of foreign of war industry money goes into universities, subsidises research, subsidises scholarships, does all kinds of things some of which on the surface sound pretty good until you realise what it is that they're actually promoting. And that is creeping into Australia too. When I say creeping, I think it's probably rushing in the scientific and technological uh, faculties, R&D, and many of our universities, security studies, so-called, are now the growth areas. While humanities are shrinking, the universities, as you would know, are desperate because they got no money out of the government during this pandemic, destroying jobs, cutting off certain, teaching certain subjects altogether, and all of those are in the areas that have nothing to do with killing people, while security studies, so-called, and anything with national security in the title is lavishly funded, and they've got plenty of money, and there are subsidies provided for that by weapons industries unless the councils of the various universities are particularly brave in saying, no, we won't take this stuff. If they resisted the proposal for a, a, a centre on the study of Western civilization, I can't understand why universities don't see the threat to their academic independence if they accept large amounts of money from the war industry as well. I'm not sure to what extent individual universities are resisting that. Some may be, but the temptation of the money must be very severe at this time. Well, finally, Alison, where is it heading if Australia is going against the flow? What's the answer? The answer is that we're heading inexorably, it seems, into another war because sooner or later, the more of this stuff you have, the more likely it is that somebody is going to use it. The problem for Australia is that if we were to use it, and the likely candidate for an, such an enemy would be China, it would be a war, a war that we would lose. We would either lose it very quickly, in the way I just described earlier about the bases being bombed. Imagine with, with conventional weapons, but not inconceivable that nuclear weapons could be used under certain circumstances. Were the case, it is a war that Australia would lose very quickly. If it were a different kind of war, we would just, and perhaps one in which the United States might support us, we would lose it slowly. There's no doubt that we would lose it one way or the other 
and it's just a question of how long and with what damage. Because the United States is not going to fight another land war in Asia. They said that after Vietnam, and they haven't, and they won't. And the United States has to find a way to avoid war with China. That doesn't mean that China won't attack Australia, particularly if it's in response to the US making something out of Taiwan. So no matter how much money we spend, no matter how many war toys we buy, cannot defend itself alone and can't defend itself even with the United States if the enemy is China. Quite frankly, we would be better to follow the example of other countries who are reducing their defense expenditure and spend it on something more productive. I think we can all concur with those sentiments from anti-war activist Dr. Alison Broyovsky. This lasting delusion about children trapped in tunnels. That's how we got Aussie Q, it seems. And now everything else, I mean, now it's just a six-month pipeline from that to Australians who, who, who live in this alternate uh, American fantasy land where they post about Donald Trump all the time. So its ability to, via Save the Children stuff, to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what I found fascinating, you know. I talk a lot in the Aussie Q videos about how your auntie, she might not be that far right wing now but she might be quite left she might just be a spiritual hippie type but there's this broad appeal to things like save the children and great awakenings there's almost a hippie like quality to it particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of, of traditional Q and it's getting people in there but Q is not just a conspiracy theory is it it is this conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months so your auntie's going to be talking about make Australia great again in six months if she isn't right now listening to Radical Radio 3CR. The new Climate Action Radio Show will surprise you. Well, first of all, I'm not a believer in global warming. I'm not a believer in man-made global warming. Global warming. And so you'll hear voices from all around Australia and overseas that are taking all types of climate action, whether it's stopping coal and gas, whether it's building a new model of society, or whether it's just sustaining you in the grief you may feel about the climate destruction we're facing. And in that spirit, here's a poem by Rumi. Stop, take a breath, for you are drunk, and we are at the edge of the roof. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Since the almost 500 million expansion 
of the Australian War Memorial in Canberra was announced a few years ago. Many groups and individuals Australia-wide have voiced their opposition, and one in particular is the Medical Association for the Prevention of War through its president, Dr Sue Wareham. I spoke late yesterday to a very angry and upset Sue just hours after the announcement of the National Capital Authority on the early works for the proposed controversial extension. Yes, today um, on Monday was announced by the uh, National Capital Authority that they have approved the War Memorial's application for so-called early works which are destructive measures preparatory to getting the major redevelopment done at the War Memorial. The early works are the demolition of Anzac Hall, the removal of 140 trees on the War Memorial grounds, various other natural landscape features to be removed and huge excavation out the front of the memorial, ripping up the parade ground, um, etc. So this is this has all been approved and yet the redevelopment of the War Memorial itself has not yet been approved. So it's a, it's a ludicrous step. But even more than that, it's just trampling on public opinion. The National Capital Authority, in their report that was released today, said they received 601 submissions on this. That's a record number of submissions to the NCA on anything ever. 601. Of that 601, three supported the uh, the works, either the early works or the redevelopment as a whole, it's a little unclear which. So that was three out of 601 were supportive. That's half a percent. And that's the half a percent that the National Capital Authority has gone with in approving this uh, these early works. So 99.5% of the people who expressed grave concerns, um, including some very, very authoritative voices on this, have just been ignored. Uh, the arguments have been ignored, flimsy responses have been given, responses that are really an insult to anybody's intelligence. And we're meant to accept this as, as our democracy, but you know, this this is the way this is not the way democracies work. Democracies people in power listen to the uh listen to the public, but here we have decisions made behind closed doors by powerful people trampling on the opinions of the general public. This is a really, really sad day for Canberra and it's a very sad day for um, for Australia to have our democracy so blatantly trampled on in this way. There's a, there's a lot of anger around this and uh, we're going to have to see, see what happens now, but it's, it's early days. The members of this National Capital Authority, how arm's length away from the government are they? Well, it's more to the point how arm's length are they from the proponents, the Australian War Memorial, because they're the ones, um, the, the board and the director of the War Memorial are the ones who want this redevelopment to, to go ahead. And um, we, we understand, well, correctly, it's not an understanding, that the War Memorial and the NCA have been working on this together for some time. And up to a point that's appropriate, that the War Memorial works with the authoritative body, the NCA. But what we see now is that the NCA has really been complicit because the 
Mr Walmore has been consistently lying about the extent of public support for this proposal. We know from every other bit of the consultation process that people don't want this. The um, expressions of opposition have been um, very, very loud and strong. So people generally don't want this. And yet the warm rule has been grossly misrepresenting public opinion. And now the NCA is just going along with that and uh, is complicit in the whole process. Um, in terms of arms links from government or not, I guess we knew from the outset that chances of stopping this were not great because um, in two, two, late 2018, the, um, the government announced support for the proposal um, and, and announced funding for it. And then after that, another part of the ludicrous picture, after that, they started the consultation process. There was a wee bit before, but uh, most of the so-called consultation has taken place since it was announced um, by the Prime Minister in late 2018. So it's all, the process has, has been shoddy from the word go, it hasn't improved and to today's decision um, just just confirms that this is a shoddy process from from go to woe um, and a, a damning indictment on what we call democracy in this country. If what you have described are early works, what does the whole project involve? Well, the whole project is Getting rid of Anzac Hall, which is an award-winning piece of architecture, only 20 or, 20 or less years old, demolishing that is hugely wasteful, destructive, um, and a lot of other things one could say about it, but demolishing that. But then um, in its place, where you've got a big hole in the landscape, new structures, vastly increased amount of floor space, uh, very, very grandiose sort of architecture, space for a lot of what are called large technology objects, you know, pieces of military machinery, fighter jets, bits of submarine tanks, all that sort of thing, which don't fit in the War Memorial at Campbell at the moment. They could go in one of the annexes, um, which is a which is a good alternate solution, but it's a um, another matter which I could say more about. So putting a big new piece of architecture in place of Anzac Hall, getting rid of the, or expanding the parade ground out the front of the memorial, getting rid of a lot of trees that are in the way of either of the bigger parade ground or of the construction work itself, and a few other bits and pieces. But it's a huge amount of extra floor space that's, uh, that's being planned for the, for the memorial. And importantly, the purposes to which that floor space will be put seems to be a lot of it for displaying of military machinery, which is not what a war memorial should be about. Those pieces should be in a museum and, and as mentioned in the Canberra suburb of Mitchell, the war memorial has quite a big annex where all of these excess large technology objects could go, could be uh, stored, preserved and exhibited there, but the memorial has chosen not to do that. So that's why a lot of people are talking about this, including our organisation, Medical Association for Prevention of War, as making the war memorial into a military theme park. You know, it's not it's not in the nature of commemorating the dead, 
um, when you're just surrounded by a whole lot of military machinery, the important questions, which should be uh, should be uh, on display and asked and addressed in the memorial about why we go to wars, what are the contexts of each of our wars, how did they start, how might they have been prevented. All of these questions are hugely important and important if we're going to respect our war debt also. Um, we should really be looking at, well, you know, how could these lives have been preserved? But those questions, we understand, are not going to get much of a look in. And we don't know for certain at the moment. But we understand that a lot of the space will be simply for military machinery. So do we see the hands of the weapons manufacturers in the background to this development? Well, we don't have any proof of that. We we can't be certain. But we do know that the weapons makers give funding to the War Memorial, which is a huge conflict of interest for them. They make money, huge amounts of money when we go to war. They rely on countries being at war and for them to be represented, named at a war memorial, honourably named, is, uh, is, is very, very bad. Um, it's a conflict of interest and just shouldn't happen. So the extent of any to which they've been involved in this redevelopment proposal, who knows, that might, might come out one day, but we, we don't know. Certainly we could say that they will benefit from the displays of the sort that I've mentioned. Uh, you know, when you put the focus onto how Australia fights and the machinery that we need when we go to war, if that's where the focus is, then yes, of course, the weapons makers are going to going to profit from that because it's, uh, it's glamorising and glorifying what they do. And what they do doesn't deserve to be glamorised or glorified. You mentioned how many disparate number of people have opposed this development. Are groups such as the RSL part of that? The RSL haven't played a strong role in, in this debate um, as as far as we can tell. Um, of the 601 submissions to the NCA that I mentioned, the memorial has only got um, somewhere, somewhere around half or a bit under on their website, they um, they haven't haven't published all of them. They say they haven't had permission to publish, but we believe they haven't tried very hard. So um, we don't know where all of the submission, whether any of the submissions are from the RSL. I don't have information on that um, at the moment. But overall, they haven't played a, a big part in the open about this discussion behind closed doors. Who knows? Does this decision by the NCA have to go to Parliament? No. No, it doesn't. The Parliament, the committee in Parliament that has already made a decision on this is the Public Works Committee that looks particularly at the issue of spending. You know, should, should the country be spending $498 million on this proposal? Um, and the Public Works Committee came out with a, even even though submissions to the Public Works Committee, again, were overwhelmingly against the proposal. The Public Works Committee came out and gave a green light to the proposal. And this is the way it's been all along. The public say no. And the authority that's inquiring at the time just goes ahead with it anyway. For the Public Works Committee, there was a, and this is very unusual for that body, for that committee, there was a dissenting report by two of the Labor members David Smith and Tony Zappia, who put in a dissenting report, particularly on the issue of the funding being a huge amount of money. 
So even within the Public Works Committee, it was contentious, but they gave the green light to it anyway. So what's happened today is the NCA has approved the so-called early works, which will mean there'll be a big hole in the ground where Anzac Hall was. There'll be huge excavations out the front of the place. There'll be 140 trees gone. And then the last step in the process is for the NCA to decide, well, should the redevelopment go ahead? Uh, I mean, this is... This is this is this is farcical. This is something out of you know cuckoo land. You dig up the place and decide whether you, whether the rebuilding should happen, and that that's been the the nature of the process all along. It's just been a total sham, um, and that's why we say it's a it's a very very sad day for Canberra, and a very sad day for Australia and for our democracy. I'd imagine that when the citizens of Canberra when this sinks in. There's going to be a lot more demonstrations. Well, once Anzac Hall's gone, and we expect the War Memorial probably going to move very quickly on this. They've been given the green light now. We know they had arrangements in place to go ahead once the green light was given. Um, such was their arrogance that they don't expect any red lights because they haven't. They've never received any. So we expect the war memorial will move fairly quickly with their destructive uh, measures, and then it's going to be uh, it's going to be a bit late. A lot of people have spoken out about this. A lot of people are going to even more than now lose faith in our democracy. This has been this is a very very sinister process of eroding people's right to have a say in the sort of city and the sort of nation that we live in. And I expect over coming months and longer visitors to the memorial will get a root shock if they hadn't heard about this process. They're going to see a place that will never be the same again. And that's going to be a very rude and a very sad shock to a lot of people, I believe. Well, I'd imagine such as yourself, it's been a long, hard battle. Sue, and I can only say how sorry we are that it's turned out like this, but it was a good fight. It was a good fight. It's important to record these things for posterity. It's really important that the War Memorial don't get away with anybody in future thinking that this is what the people of Canberra or the people of Australia wanted, because it wasn't. And it's very important that people in the future know that the NCA was complicit in this. So those things are important to have documented. It's not the outcome we wanted and we don't necessarily know that this is the end of it yet. I can't say any more on that now, but uh, there are a lot of people with fighting spirit uh, on this left, uh, left stool and a lot of people are angry about this and we'll be thinking what next. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Jan. Appreciate your interest in this. An angry and saddened president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, Dr Sue Wareham, but I'd imagine that this is not the last we'll hear of this. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.